The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the sixth chapter. Jesus said, But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. I could repeat this to myself over and over, and I wonder, why don't I? Why don't I lift up passages like this from Scripture more often? Why don't I let them become the drumbeat of my life? So many glorious images of comfort and connection and grace and abundance come to mind when I hear that simple verse. And as I tried to hone in on just one for this Sunday, I couldn't help but think about baking. A good measure of flour dumped into the bowl. Espresso beans ground up and pressed down in order to achieve the right amount. Baking powder and cocoa sifted in, shaken together with all the other ingredients. For me, it's always the vanilla running over the edge of the teaspoon because I'm one that thinks the recipe never calls for enough vanilla. And at the end of all of this, the best chocolate cake I've ever tasted will be put into your lap. Delicious, 
comforting, grace-filled, abundantly chocolatey chocolate cake. And now I'm getting a little hungry. The image could be baking for you too, or it could be a nice glass of wine filled to the brim, the juice of the most exquisite grapes running over from a beautiful vineyard harvest. It could be a recent construction project, building a shed or perhaps a tree house or a fence, the boards coming together, maybe having to be jostled just a little bit to get them into the right place. But the final product bringing you a sense of peace and productivity that you only glimpse in moments. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. This beautiful promise comes at the end of one of the most challenging passages in all of Scripture. One of the most challenging series of teachings from Jesus ever recorded, the Sermon on the Plain. And perhaps this is why I don't repeat that verse to myself daily. Because the teaching that comes before it causes me serious discomfort. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Give up your shirt if asked for your coat. Give to everyone, literally every single person who begs of you. And if someone steals from you, don't ask for the item back. By the world's standards, this is a fool's way to live. We are taught to get even, to remember every offense, to seek revenge when someone has wronged us. We are taught that love is weak, that enemies are targets, that those who disagree with us are pure evil, and that those who steal and beg are riffraff who deserve what is coming to them. And I'm afraid that the church hasn't done too much better with this teaching than the world has. We dismiss it just as easily. In Lutheran circles, Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Plain is often dismissed as the second use of the law. Let me unpack that a little. Luther said that the second use of the law was the law, that is God's commandments, used in order to drive us toward the cross, to drive us to recognize our sinfulness, our flawed human nature, our inability to live out these commands. And thus, Lutherans have at times dismissed Jesus' words here as simply spiritual, leading a believer to recognize how far they are from God's desire in order that they might truly and fully repent, thus receiving God's grace and becoming right with God once again. Others in the church have watered these teachings down, saying that Jesus only demands of us mere shadows of these things, that Jesus couldn't possibly mean these teachings literally. How naive would that be? And others in the church have dismissed Jesus' words through their own self-delusion, believing themselves to be doing a fairly good job already of keeping these commandments, and then worst yet, inflicting their most pious interpretations of these passages on others, complete with judgment and expectation. Granted, this takes an exceptional amount of self-delusion, but nonetheless, it happens. 
And the danger with all three of these is they, that they can avoid, they can allow one to avoid a real engagement with the passage, a real engagement with this teaching from Jesus. And I think at the heart of it, a real engagement with ourselves. I want to suggest today that passages like this one and the one we led, read last week from the Beatitudes, also part of the Sermon on the Plain, are passages that call us to struggle. They call us to reevaluate our entire sense of ourselves and our common life together. And in thinking on the Beatitudes last Sunday, it occurred to me that I have heard the words, you are so blessed, so many times over the last five months. And of course, folks are talking about the twins and the fact that Jamie and I received the gift of children after a serious bout of infertility as a result of cancer. Interestingly, though, Jesus doesn't say that those who have already received, those who already have, are the blessed ones. Rather, instead, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says the exact opposite. And while I am no doubt certain that Jesus is happy that I have had Henry and Diana, and I am no doubt certain that they are a gift from God, I am also in no doubt that I am not generally in the group of folks Jesus is ultimately referring to when he preaches the Beatitudes. God's highest blessing in our lives and in our world is reserved for those who suffer and who continue to suffer, for those who struggle, for those who are outcast, overlooked, and forgotten, And Jesus names them specifically in the Gospel of Luke, the hungry, the poor, those who mourn, the reviled, hated, excluded, and defamed. Blessing in God's world is given to these such people. Blessing in God's world is turned on its head. I remember several of my pastoral colleagues in Houston commenting after Hurricane Harvey on the danger of invoking God's blessing carelessly. They warned their parishioners that to say you are blessed because your home is spared flooding and damage is to indicate that your neighbors whose homes were damaged or destroyed did not then receive God's blessing. According to Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, That couldn't be further from the truth. If because I have had children after infertility, I am blessed, then are those who remain infertile damned by God or loved less by God? Surely we do not confess this to be the case. For I am no more deserving than the next woman struggling to bear children into this world. And indeed, when we hear Jesus teaching on the Beatitudes, we realize that those who the world readily identifies as blessed are not those whom God declares blessed. So dear friends, we have to struggle with the fact that the folks that Jesus names and blesses 
the starving, the poor, the hated, the reviled, the excluded, the defamed, well, for the most part, they are not us. We have to struggle with the fact that we have not done a very good job of following today's teachings as well, of loving our enemies, of blessing those who have cursed us, of doing good to those who hate us. And yet, at the end of this tough teaching and our struggle worth it, is that verse of profound comfort, that verse of promise, that verse filled with grace. And the difficulty of the teachings before it causes us to wonder, what is it doing there? Well, perhaps it's doing this, and please permit me a rather strained metaphor here. Perhaps it is reminding us that Jesus' teaching is more like baking a cake or building a fort or aging a wine than we think. Perhaps it is reminding us that we are being beckoned to create a whole new thing, a whole new recipe, a whole new set of building instructions, a whole new formula for the perfect wine entirely different and other than anything we have produced before. A whole new world, a whole new way of life, God's kingdom, Jesus calls it, where everything gets turned sideways and upside down and shaken together, and we realize that we like it that way even more. A world where when we get to know our enemy, we see something wonderful in them that we never thought would be there. A world where the limited idea of blessing that we have had in the past breaks open to include all of God's children. A world where in listening to the stories of those who have hated us and cursed us, we begin to see them as we see ourselves as flawed humans worthy of grace, love, healing, wholeness, and peace. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Amen.